Welcome to another episode of Wheel Adventures. This, in fact, is episode 13. The previous episode was called episode 13, when in fact it was episode 12. Just to alleviate any confusion, this is actually episode 13. Title of it is Riding the Great Divide. It was about 1997 that I started motorcycling again after having taken a few years away from it. And I was drawn to, as I have been for many, many years, drawn to doing off-road motorcycle touring, what has become called, termed, at least in our country, adventure touring. I think in England they refer to it as overlanding and maybe in a few other countries so i started uh you know i got a i got a uh, kind of an obscure model kawasaki klr 650 in 1997 and i started doing local rides and uh in colorado i was living in longmont so i would ride north to uh, wyoming and i would head over onto the west slope and ride uh Ride a, a number of wonderful gravel rides like Boreas Pass and Kebler Pass and connecting pavement with with dirt. And uh, would go out for overnighters or three or four day trips. But along, along 2001, early 2001, I was looking at doing a bicycle tour if I had the time and the bicycle tour I wanted to do was called the Great Divide Mountain Bike Route. This was mapped out, the mapping completed in 1997 and this organization out of Missoula, Montana called the Adventure Cycling Association published maps very similar to the maps that are printed, published by butler maps they were plastic maps so didn't have to worry about get them getting them wet and getting them destroyed and uh so they 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 completed the the guidebook written by mike mccoy who was instrumental in mapping out doing the cartography on this and and riding and driving the route in a jeep an old jeep cherokee determining that it that the routes went through and that they weren't routing people on routes that are too technically difficult or private. Not being too technically difficult is a criteria for people mountain bike touring, what's now referred to commonly as bikepacking. And the reason is is that uh, most people to this day still ride this route on a mountain bike, pulling the, either with panniers, with saddlebags on, or pulling the most popular way that it's been done in years past, and I think up to the present, is a lot of individuals use a mountain bike with at least front suspension, with a suspension fork, and they pull a single-wheel trailer called a bob trailer with all their gear. And you're pulling with the weight of the trailer, and the camping gear, 
even going as light as you can go. There, there are many sections that you have to carry enough water and food till your next resupply place. So it's, you know, you're, you're pulling at least 40 or 50 pounds behind you and trying to ride really steep or insanely difficult terrain for a long distance means that uh, it, it's hard to complete the route in the time given over the course of the year because the route doesn't really open up until, you know, end of June at least, depending on the snow year. You can be hitting a situation where you can't get over a lot of the passes because it, it actually climbs elevation gain, gain is over 200,000 feet of elevation gain and you go over the divide 30 times. So it has to be mild enough to get through this so that you're not just, it's not a total technical grind the whole way. So there's very little single track. It's composed of about 90% unpaved roads that vary between really, most of them really are just nice gravel roads or a nice double track varying with, some four-wheel drive roads that can get pretty chunky. You can run into mud, and in which case, in the uh, southwest, uh, the southern sections of the route, composed of this bentonite clay that just turns into you, you can't even negotiate it with the with most four-wheel drive vehicles. It becomes unrideable. So the way the route was was originally conceived and designed for mountain bike tours seemed an ideal route to use large dual sports, BMW GS-type motorcycles, which I was riding at the time. I had a R100 GS PD, the Paris Dakar version, which is which is kind of a heavy bike, I decided not knowing exactly what I was going to encounter on this route. I was drawn to do this route by motorcycle because I didn't have enough time needing, the time needed to ride this in its entirety on average is two months. Now, people have raced it in as little as like 15 or 16 days, I think the record is, which is insane. There's a difference between racing and touring, as most everybody listening to this podcast assumes. But a lot of people will take a racing approach to touring, and that's what the Tour Divide race is by bicycle, is they are going as light as possible, riding the most efficient machine, that they human-powered machine that they can possibly ride. And they're an incredibly strong group of people because riding... Uh, 3,000 miles, 3,083 miles to be precise is what the route consists of now. And it now starts in, um, it starts up in Banff and goes all the way to the southern border of the U.S. to Antelope Wells. When I rode it, it, the route officially started in Roosevelt, Montana and at the Canadian border and rode south to to Antelope Wells. As far as I could tell, in the late winter, early spring of 2001, no one had had ridden this by motorcycle. 
It was designed as a bicycle tour. In my experience, I haven't run into a lot of adventure riders, motorcyclists, that bicycle tour that have done long-distance bicycle touring as well as long-distance motorcycle touring. I have. And I was drawn to riding this by, by mountain bike, but not having the time to get away for that period of time. I opted for looking at it in terms of can this go as a an ideal large dual sport off-road adventure tour, go from border to border. Keep in mind, this is years before any backcountry discovery routes took place and, and started to take shape and were mapped out by Butler and uh, Oregon backcountry discovery routes. Uh, it just, they didn't exist. So at that time, if you wanted to do adventure touring, you'd just kind of wing it. You know, you'd look at a Delorme Gazetteer uh, Atlas for your state or, or, or just go out and try and find dirt roads and try and connect them as best you can with roadmaps. So the internet being somewhat limited for, for the day, you know, back in 2001, as best as I could tell, searching through message boards and forums, nobody had even considered doing this. So very much akin to what climbers celebrate, which is first ascents. I was drawn to the idea of being the first person to do an epically long adventure tour within the confines of of America, of the United States. As far as I could tell, no one had done anything like that yet. And especially no one had utilized the Great Divide mountain bike route for this up to that point. So I was fully willing to do this solo. I've done most of my motorcycle touring over the years by myself or with a spouse. But I thought, you know, it'd be really interesting to spread the word on this. And I'm not a moto journalist, but I respect many that I have read. And I was a subscriber to Rider Magazine. And I really enjoyed the style of writing that Clement Salvadori had done. So I reached out to him. I actually called, left a message, and and uh, said, hey, thinking about doing this route that I think would be not only a fun ride to do for you, but I think that it would would uh, play well for your readers uh, through Rider Magazine. Would you be interested in joining me? He called back. We talked about it, and uh, we decided to meet July first uh up in Roosevelt Roosevelt Montana and uh checked into a motel just right about a couple miles from the uh, from the the border crossing chatted got to know each other a little bit and we took off the next day heading south and uh we ran into uh not literally but uh after the first I don't know, it must have been about 200 miles. We ran into a group, uh, our first group of bicycle tourists, which was kind of entertaining because when we stopped, we chatted with them and asked them if they were doing the whole thing and where they were from and all the usual chit-chat. 
and uh, it was kind of funny. They they uh, they asked us where we had started, and we said, uh, "Ah, yeah, we left this morning uh, from Roosevelt." And they said, "Oh, we left there ten days ago." So that's one of the biggest differences that you see, and it's fairly obvious that if you're riding something that's human powered versus uh, something with a motor, you can cover a lot more ground. The first few miles after we left the border crossing were composed of a, it all, it was almost like riding a multi-use bicycle path because it was barely one lane wide, but it was paved and it was perfect pavement. And there were these wonderful roller coaster hills, these very steep up and down it, it, with tremendous views off to the right. And that was enjoyable. So that was, it was a, it was kind of a, cool way to start the the uh, journey having this smooth fast perfect pavement narrow forest service road and why they paved it is beyond me because it just didn't make any sense but it it sure was fun and we gradually transitioned onto perfect gravel dirt roads about one lane wide varying between single lane of dirt and double track. And after we left that group of riders, we continued continued south. We, uh, our intention was for us to camp the um, most of the way. As it turned out, we ended up doing such long days, we would start riding it at sunrise, thereabouts, and we would ride usually until pretty close to sunset, sometimes after, and consequently, we only camped one night. And I believe it was that first night, it might have been the second night, because it's been now 20, 22 years since doing this route, so I'm trying to go from, from memory. And there is an article on writermagazine.com in their pro their archives of this article. So Clement wrote an article about the trip titled Motorcycle Travel from Canada to Mexico. And what he said in the article is, let me preface this little story with a single statement. This was the best ride I have ever taken on the North American continent. I've cycled from Alaska to Panama, from Nova Scotia to Baja, California, and this trip topped them all. So let me get back to the the route itself. I carried the maps, and uh, I think I also had had the uh, Michael McCoy guidebook. Clement only had the guidebook, and we were going on, uh, since there's points that you have to turn at to stay on route, this this was before we could download GPS, uh, GPX files into our GPS and follow it easily the way we can today. So we, we had to watch our odometer pretty closely. I had an enduro roll chart that I had gone through the entire map and guidebook and copied uh, tulips, rally tulips, onto the roll chart 
for the entire 2,700 plus miles that we did. So we had that, and uh, Clement had the guidebook. His way of doing it was to tear pages out of the guidebook and put it in his map case on his uh, tank bag on his motorcycle and refer to that. But normally I would was the one to be following, uh, which was, I think, painful for him because he, he, he was clearly a faster rider on the R1150 GS he was riding than I was on my little F650 GS Dakar. On the other hand, when it was dirt, I was the one usually in the lead, leading out, the uh, uh, staying a, up ahead, and I would always stop it wherever there was a possibility to get confusion and get separated. Since we didn't have any radio contact, I, I, we had cell phones, but there was essentially no cell phone coverage out there. So that's how we were, we were running it. And uh, I think the first night, God, I cannot remember where we stayed the first night. It might have been, we got all the way to Polaris, Montana, which is, uh, which was it, we got to Polaris and there was a uh, private campground there that we stayed at. So I think that was the only night we camped because we were putting in such big days. We were riding sometimes 300, almost 400 miles in a day on dirt. And uh, frankly, we were just really, really pissed tired we were hungry didn't want to have to cook with our with our camp gear and set up a tent so we mostly just each rented a motel room somewhere along the way in the end of the that particular day and uh, clement always managed somehow he managed to find a decent bottle of wine to carry with him i don't think he carried nine bottles of wine for the entire trip but uh, he always managed to have a good bottle of wine good bottle of red to celebrate the day with at the end of the day. And we would usually find a local restaurant. And after we left um, Polaris, that was south of Flathead Lake, which we, we went off route mainly because we were running into a section that was either non-motorized traffic only or in the case of an area called Fleecer Ridge, which is known amongst amongst the mountain bike tours as being an incredibly steep downhill when you're heading north to south, as we were. Like so steep that most people wouldn't even ride it. They would walk their bike down, which was challenging enough just on foot, uh, trying to hold your, your mountain bike back with all of the heavy gear. I have read recently that some people have ridden it on lighter dual sports than what we had. And I'm sure there may be some listeners out there that will somehow let me know that they have ridden it by a large GS. It's not something I would want to do because it's all loose baby heads and fist-sized rocks on an incredibly steep grade. So we've, anyways, we bypassed that out to, uh, had a lovely paved ride uh, around the eastern shore of Flathead Lake, continued south to, like I said, I believe we got to to Polaris the first night. 
left the nest next morning after camping and packing up our gear and headed south towards the Wyoming-Montana border. Somewhere on the highway, we were at this point we were traversing a highway section, we were between, between Helena and Butte, if I remember correctly, and I want to say it was... Can't remember the name of the the highway, but it was a four lane highway, and we were doing about seventy five. And I had neglected to zip my arrow stitch Darien jacket pocket closed that contained the current map, the ACA map for the Great Divide route, and it. It got sucked out of my pocket at 75 or 80 miles an hour. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> so I sped up to flag Clement down, and we took the next exit to turn around, came back, did a loop. God, it was seemed like it was forever. It was embarrassing. Um, but I found the map. Evidently, the plastic maps like the ACA uses for the Great Divide route or the plastic maps that Butler uses, if it explodes out of your pocket at 80 miles an hour, it, it actually does explode. It, it didn't just tear it. It kind of it kind of exploded it, but it, there were no missing pieces. It just shat, kind of shattered. A, a good two-thirds of it. So I, I was able to tape it back together. It's taped together still to this day. And uh, and it was usable, but that was embarrassing. Earlier in our trip, I think it was near Lincoln, Montana, that uh, we had we were getting near the end of a long day. And I promptly put my motorcycle... Uh, down onto a side stand that was not down. And it tipped over, not towards the pump, but away from the pump, which was fortunate. Didn't hurt anything except my pride because here this here's this guy that I respect, you know, this, uh, Clement Salvadori, who's this respected motorcyclist, author, and so forth. And I'm, I, do, I do a rookie move, like put my bike down without the side stand being down. But as he pointed out in his article, it's uh, it's just an indication of how tired we were, we were, and it's uh, it's a it was a good message to uh, to maybe start looking for a place to spend the night. Navigating on this route was theoretically simple because we had very precise directions about which way to turn on which road based on an odometer reading. In application, the problem you run into is finding a, uh, an accurate odometer reading. So I was actually even using a GPS that I didn't have the, the route on, but I was able to reset it, and it still was off occasionally, about where we were 
and we'd get to a turn according to the odometer or the map saying this is where you need to turn and the odometer would not corroborate that and vice versa so it took a little bit of creative riding sometimes to take a chance on a route and go down a ways before we realized yeah this isn't right this doesn't seem right so we'd turn around and get back on route so there were a number of touristy sort of things to visit along the way um old bannock road was one of them and uh there was some mining camps and old old corrals and cabins along the way that we encountered. It was also interesting, I think, for me to see, at this point, uh, all-terrain vehicles, and I think side-by-sides were just starting to, razors were just starting to happen. And I'd never seen one of those before, and one pulls up at a gas pump, and I'm like, wow, that is really cool, and you can actually ride them on the roads. Something you can't do here in Oregon, unfortunately. As we moved further south along the the route, it goes for a short period of time through Idaho, near Ashton, Idaho, to be precise. And as soon as we made the transition onto this road outside of Ashton, Idaho, that that went on dirt roads stayed on dirt all the way through the Teton National Park. I don't know why forest services do this, but they dumped literally six to eight inches deep of gravel. So it's one thing to be riding in sand when it's deep, deep sand. But it's, oh my God, it was horrible. I just hated it. Clement attacked it with more confidence than I did. I I don't think I went much faster than 15 or 20 miles an hour, but it was just so deep and wallowy. I was like, oh, good Lord, what the actual hell? Why they do that, I have no idea. There's just no reason that I can think of why one would dump gravel that deep onto a road. So we followed that road, and eventually the the deep gravel ended after, I don't know, 10 or 15 miles. And we're getting into the the real backcountry of uh, Tetons, coming out towards uh, the road that connects between Yellowstone and the Teton National Park. And it turned into just really fun, cambered double track. Not too rocky, just right for really flying and i was at this point i think i was way ahead of probably a good several miles ahead of clement on the on his big 1150 gs having a ball on this this double track road going through the forest at at uh, high rates of speed all of a sudden it started to feel really wallowy now keep in mind i've been at this point it was 2001, and I was 49 years old. I was born in 52. So at this point, I had been riding motorcycles since I was 16, and I'd never had a flat tire. And this was my first flat tire. And unfortunately, I I had brought a patch kit. I had brought not a spare tube but uh, tire irons, but 
no spare tube. And Clement was aghast. I was like, okay, that's a real rookie movie. How long you been riding? So he was generous enough. We were able to pull over to um, an area, like a parking area, like a trailhead on this really remote dirt road and uh, got the rear wheel, put my bike up onto uh, a log so that we could get enough elevation, get the, uh, get the wheel off. He let me ride his GS into Jackson Hole, which was, it ended up being an eight-hour epic because this was 4th of July and there were no bike shops open. I was able to find somebody who worked out of his garage who was in the middle of a barbecue, 4th of July day barbecue with family and friends, who generously enough was willing to take a few minutes out and sell me a tube and replace it. Oh, the thing I skipped over is when I got out onto uh, to the highway, I think it was in, I went to Flag Ranch with the wheel on the back of Clement's motorcycle. And I went to the garage and two mechanics with tire irons, like car tire irons, could not get the, the tire off of that, the, the bead off of that rim. So that was a bit of a mess. Um, so I thought, well, I hope I can find somebody who can get this off because doing it with motorcycle tire irons clearly wasn't, wasn't in, the, uh, in the cards. So as things turned out, I, with about a seven or eight hour delay that day, I got back to where Clement was with my motorcycle. We got the wheel back on. I did leave him with my can of canister of bear spray, pepper spray, because there was a sign right there that he was somewhat nervous about saying uh, grizzly bears sighted in this area. So when I got back, I didn't know if I would find Clement intact or, or a pile of grizzly crap that smelled like pepper spray and and red red wine we continued on our way south spent the night in dubois that is a little town one of my favorite places to go through i've been through there road touring by motorcycle many times uh there's a place called the cowboy cafe that has hands down the best chicken fried steak and pie you will ever eat even better than pie town i i have to tell you if you know where Pie Town, New Mexico is, and we'll get to that eventually. Spent the night at a, uh, got each got rooms at a uh, little motel in Dubois. It's spelled Dubois, and you will get your ass kicked if you call it Dubois. So it's Dubois, Wyoming. Had dinner at the Cowboy Cafe. I believe we had breakfast there in the morning, which was equally extraordinary. And uh, headed headed down along the Wind River Range, along the big and little sandy rivers, back onto the Continental Divide and dirt at Atlantic City. And this is not the same Atlantic City you see in New Jersey. This is, uh, it's, Almost a ghost town, but there were a few people that lived there. There were a couple of little establishments. Could have actually spent the night there. 
uh, they had some lodging there, and that would have actually been kind of fun, but it, it would have been a really long day to make it to there. So thus starts the long uh, north to south traverse of the Red Desert in the Great Basin. And this was actually one of my favorite parts of the trip. And it's interesting to read journals from mountain bike people that are touring through there, and they want to bypass it on the road. They just want it over with as, as soon as possible. And I've read that some motorcycle tourists doing this adventure route have also commented that it was their least favorite. It was the most favorite for me because it just felt like riding through what it must be like riding through the Serengeti in Africa. That's kind of what it reminds me of. Very open, almost no trees, and great roads. Keep in mind the whole way that we have gone, you will go for literally hours without encountering another motor vehicle of any kind. And at the time, since it was just kind of getting started amongst mountain bike tours, you didn't even see an awful lot of them on the road. We would run into a group once or twice a day sometimes and uh, stop, stop and chat with them. So this Great Basin, Red Desert area, drops down all the way to almost to I-80 and Rollins, Wyoming. So we continued through Rollins. I don't think we stopped it. I don't think we took time to stop. We had to kind of rush this because Clement had certain certain commitments in terms of time that he needed to, to stick to. I had a desire to, once we got to the Mexican border, to immediately head to the National Motorcycle, BMW Motorcycle Rally, the MOA Rally, Motorcycle Owners of a motor, Motorcycle Owners of a Association, uh, in Redmond, Oregon, where I now live. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to get there in time for it to start. So essentially, with we had a, like a day and a half break in the middle of this ride when we got into Colorado, which we're almost there being a southern part of Wyoming. I didn't stop at one of my favorite hot springs, which is in Saratoga Springs, Wyoming. It's a free hot spring pool that you can soak in, but you have to have a very high tolerance of heat because the coolest place that you can get into this, I've measured at 110 degrees, so it's freaking hot. And I only last, even in the coolest spots, I can only last five or ten minutes before I have to get out and cool down. The North Platte River runs right adjacent to it, so you can walk a few feet down to the river and get in, do a cold plunge in the river, which is really satisfying. Anyways, I we skipped that because we had to keep going because Clement had commitments, I had a commitment. So we got into, uh, passed into the northern border of Colorado and went through Steamboat Springs, at which point at Steamboat, we, uh, we split up for uh, a couple of nights, uh, a day and a half, two nights, um, two days, whatever it was, that took away from the tour because he had some relatives he had to visit in uh, Denver, and I live in Longmont, so I, I shot in home, did some laundry, 
uh, recovered a little bit, and then uh, and then we met up uh, in uh, in Breckenridge. So we did not do the dirt section between Steamboat Springs and Breckenridge. However, I did ride that in 2007. I did a mountain bike tour that started in Steamboat Springs, where we left the route on the motorcycle ride to visit respective families. So I started in Steamboat Springs on a mountain bike, a uh, human-powered, not electric-assisted. 2007, I rode south to Durango, which is off the Great Divide mountain bike route, but I didn't continue. There was no reasonable place to end my mountain bike tour in 2007 in the northern part of New Mexico. So I diverted to Durango because I had to rent a car to get back to Steamboat Springs with my bike and pick up my vehicle there. But picking up the route in uh, Breckenridge, which is which is a great little ski town, we uh, we started over Boreas Pass, and I had a friend of mine, uh, Steve, who lived in Longmont, accompany me up to Breckenridge on his Goldwing, his GL eighteen hundred. And uh, uh, weirdly enough, Steve Steve decided to accompany us to the top of Boreas Pass, which is, it'll give you some idea how smooth Boreas Pass is because you can drive a minivan up it or, in Steve's case, a Goldwing uh, over it. And uh, so he, he rode with us to the top of Boreas Pass. On the other side, it gets a little less civilized for, uh, for a Goldwing, and he headed back home, and Clement and I headed further south along the route. So uh, went through a town called Como, which is essentially a, uh, a ghost part, a ghost, uh, ghost town. And it's, uh, it's in an area called, it's, it's near a town called South Park. And South Park is made famous with the, the uh, cartoon. And South Park in reality is nothing like the town in the cartoon. So we went through Hartzell, uh, went through one of our first ever water crossing uh, outside of Mar- uh, Hartzell and then went over Marshall Pass in the rain. And they weren't too bad. I mean, it's not, it's, it, you know, in parts of Colorado, when the roads, the dirt roads get wet, uh, depending on the location, which over near the western, the far western slope can be really treacherous when they get wet because it just turns into. It actually looks like someone just sprayed three to four inches of butterscotch pudding on the road and laid it over black ice. That's kind of what it's like to ride on. So we continued into uh, into New Mexico, and the northern portion of New Mexico was uh, was challenging. Now, before we got there, though, we, we went through Salida, which is kind of the halfway point for a lot of riders, motorcyclists and bicyclists. Yeah, I think we stayed in Salida that night and headed south into southern Colorado in the New Mexican border that next day. We made it not quite to the border that day. We got to 
Alamosa, in the uh, down in, near the Sangre de Cristos in the San Luis Valley, which is a beautiful valley. Got there right around dark, got a hamburger, and hit the hay. Got up the next day, and we started into northern New Mexico and encountered actually one of the only really, as I remember, the only really rough section of road. And it wasn't real long. It was maybe a couple miles long. It was going up Brazos Ridge. And I was concerned about Clement because he never, ever stands up. I, I never saw him stand up once in all of the thousands of miles of dirt riding we were doing. I always sit down. But uh, going up Brazos Ridge was, it was riding a couple of miles of baby heads. And if you don't know what baby heads are, they're rocks the size of babies or baby heads. And, and it was, they were kind of roly-poly. And I thought, well, I, when I got to the w- top of the worst of it, up near the, the top of the climb, I, uh, I waited for a little while until I saw Clement coming up the road, sitting down, taking it easy over the baby heads. He made it. Never, Neither one of us ever crashed. The only tip over that I had was at the gas station when I forgot to put my freaking side stand down up in Montana. So... New Mexico in general, staying on the route was kind of a mixed bag because there were afternoon thunderstorms that would start. And we had to, uh, there were a couple of times when we, we were like, eh, it looks like it might rain, but it might not. So let's just keep going on the route and then have to find a way to bail out on incredibly slippery bentonite clay roads that uh, turned to just complete snot. And worked our way down to Cuba, New Mexico, where Clement had a flat. But because the 1150 GS is tubeless, he had a uh, plug-and-go kit. So he plugged the, uh, he plugged the, uh, the, the, the leak, and we were on our way without so much as an eight-hour diversion. I think it took maybe 15, 20 minutes. There you go. Big advantage and not having tubes because, oh, when they pulled the 10-penny nail out of the tire that when I had a flat up in the Tetons, yeah, it, had, uh, it hadn't just punctured the tube. There was, a, there was a tear the size of my hand in the tube. So there's no way that tube could be re- repaired in any way, even if I could have gotten that tire off the, off the rim. So we... Um, I think we spent the night in Cuba, and there's a Mexican restaurant there that has some of the best carne adivada I've ever had. So we we ate there. As far as I remember, we spent the night there and headed the next day down into Pie Town and went to the Pioneer Cafe where they have pie almost as good as the Cowboy Cafe in Dubois, Wyoming. So after uh, two pieces of strawberry rhubarb pie and, um, and, and after some dinner there, we, uh, we hit the road and uh, made it down a little bit further. But we did have to deal with some slick roads and once again had to make a diversion. 
We made it to Silver City, which would be the last night that we spent on the route north of the southern terminus at the Mexican border. So the next day was fairly uneventful. We rode uh, some back dirt roads from Silver City, New Mexico, down to Antelope Wells, which is where the border station is. We stopped in a little Mexican restaurant that doesn't exist anymore, as far as I know, at Hachita, which is just maybe 45 minutes north of the border. Once we got to the border, Clement and I took a few pictures and uh, said our goodbyes, parted ways. Him back to uh, where he lives in in uh, near San Luis Obispo, and back to his work writing, and myself heading north to the BMW Motorcycle Owners Association National Rally, which was a big rally in uh, in Redmond, Oregon. Weirdly enough at the campground that ended up being only less than a mile from where I live now, back uh, 21 years ago. Clement's article in Rider Magazine about our tour did not get published until, I want to say it was, uh, well, here it is right here. I'm looking at it online. Uh, it was the April 2003 issue of Rider Magazine. So it took a little while for it to come out. That year in 2003, I rode from Colorado to the um, to the West Coast on my at, the, at that time a year earlier I had bought an 1150 GS Adventure. And I stopped off to spend the night at one of my favorite hot springs along the uh, along Highway 50, just east of Austin, Austin, Nevada. <clears throat> it's called Spencer Hot Springs, and it's only it's on a, off a wide dirt road. I don't know about five, five, six, seven miles from the highway, but it's a uh, it's not a natural hot spring. It's a, it's a hot spring that uh, <clears throat> that emerges from the ground from when they were drilling for oil in this area, and it tapped into a hot spring. A geother- There's a lot of geothermal activity in this area, and they made a pool, and it's a perfect temperature, and it's in this big open valley called Monitor Valley. It's just extraordinary. So that morning I was packing up to go and uh, a group of riders on dual sport bikes and KLR 650s pulled up and I guess this is what is this is what it must feel like to be a celebrity because I had these guys come up to me and go you're Mark Waters you're that guy we just read that article this spring and that that article in Rider magazine about the great divide route we're all going to do that this summer so that was really fun and really gratifying to uh, to know that that coming across this 
the idea for doing this border-to-border ride that had really never, never been considered before, that doing this and running the route and Clement writing about the experience of it had basically created a bucket list for fellow adventure tourers and I can't help but think I don't I don't know this to be a f- for a fact but I, I don't know it to be true but I kind of guess that the whole idea of starting the the BDR routes the backcountry discovery routes came from this route that people started doing on mass and when I did the route from Steamboat Springs to Durango back in uh, 07, I saw more adventure touring motorcycles and dual sport bikes on the the route that I did than other human-powered travelers, than other mountain bike tourers. And I had heard from somebody at the Adventure Cycling Association in Missoula, Montana, that they were selling more of the maps and guidebooks to motorcycles, people that were riding motorcycle on the route, than bicycle tourists. You know, from my perspective, I love both. There are advantages and disadvantages with everything and every approach. And it's kind of funny, you know, when I when I rode my 1150 GS back in, uh, I think it was 06, I rode from St. Augustine, Florida, to, uh, I rode to, no, it wasn't, I think it was 08. Yeah, I get these dates screwed up. It's been so long. But uh, I think it was 2008. I rode from St. Augustine, Florida to Talkeetna, Alaska. And when I was riding on the Alcan, I would come across cyclists, sometimes groups of cyclists or sometimes solo riders on bicycles that were riding south. There's a number of people that go up just to do the Alcan, and there's another number of bicycle tourists, just like adventure motorcycle riders, that will start in Prudhoe Bay and ride to the southern tip of South America. And it's interesting to note my experience when I see these bicycle tourists and I'm on a motorcycle. I always feel a little bit of like, oh, I wish I was doing that. And likewise, when I'm doing bicycle touring and I see somebody doing uh, adventure touring on a road that I'm bikepacking, doing some bicycle touring on going, oh, that's so fun too. They're, you know, they're just, they're different approaches to the same core experience, which is to be out there and feeling the wind and smelling the air, and seeing the scenery unenclosed by being inside of a four-wheel vehicle of any kind. You're outside the cage, and you're vulnerable, and different vulnerability for motorcycle versus bicycle. Bicycle, you're at the mercy of being at the side of the road and going substantially slower than the vehicle, other vehicles. Motorcycle, you're traveling a higher rate of speed. Crashes can have more dire consequences, let's say. 
But it's all kind of the same thing, whether you're using your muscles or you're using gas. It's the experience of exposing yourself to, to that which sustains us. The great world around us that is the planet that supports us and gives birth to us and holds us, holds our rem- earthly remains when we die. You're exposing yourself to vulnerability and therefore you go deeper into yourself and deeper into the connection of everything around you. And I feel that. I feel that connection to however you define the divine, and I have my own definitions of it. I feel a part of that. I feel integral to that. I feel I'm part of that whole. And by doing the great divide route with Clement, it was probably the most impactful. On a superficial level, I'd have to agree with what Clement says, that it was just the best. He said that it just topped every tour, every ride he's ever done. But it had some effect that, that really had an impact on me that, that went deeper than that. I had a major life change after that ride because it made me realize that not only was I connected to everything around me, but I felt like I was part of something bigger than just my small self. And I went through a divorce with a woman who was a wonderful woman and continued to be a friend. But that experience was one of the catalysts for leading me towards seeking something deeper in my life. And out of that came, eventually, about three years later, came the relationship that I had been looking for my entire time on this earth. So sometimes things of this magnitude that break us open to seeing more deeply within ourselves and moving into that depth and embodying it means that it's more than just a really good ride. It takes us outside of the box that we may have formed for ourselves and into the larger expanse of the never-ending horizon. So thanks for coming along with us on this ride from border to border along the spine of the United States. And we will see you next time here on Wheel Adventures.